And uh, as we get ready today, and I've been thinking about the title of this series, The Greatest Hits, I, it reminds me of a story from my childhood, and I want to share that with you, because um, it's kind of a different kind of hit. Um, so the story begins on the playground at my elementary school. We were the Wilton Grove Wizards, and uh, the boys lined up to play football, to play tackle football in the yard. And most of them had played in the Little League football, but I did not. It wasn't something my mother wanted me to do, but I was fleet-footed, so I thought I'd be okay. On one play, I received the ball and proceeded down the center of the field, Main Street, towards the end zone. And I was dreaming of running across the backpacked marked goal line. You know how you used to do that with your shoes or whatever was around to mark the field? I was dreaming across, of running across that and, and scoring a touchdown for all the elementary school football glory I could get out of that. Um, one player, my best friend, Paul, he stood in the way, but I was already cruising at full speed, heading straight toward him, and he was standing still. So you picture me. You know, that's not how I ran, of course. It was much cooler. But, uh, no, so I'm running at him thinking, you know, I've got the advantage. I'm moving. Physics works out here. We're about the same size. But he's in my way, and I'm just going to, in my mind, I'm just going to run him over. That's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to run him over, or he's going to move out of the way. We're doing some type of football chicken. So, <coughs> sorry. As I approached him, Paul did not appear to be intimidated in the least at the fact that I was coming at him. I, I mean, I was going pretty fast, right? And he's just looking at me, smiling. And I, and I don't understand it. I, I, don't, I don't quite understand why he's smiling. This is going to be bad. I'm about to knock this guy out, right? And he's just smiling at me and lowering his body. And I don't get it. I'm just running, running. And he's lowering his body. And I don't get it until suddenly I'm on him. And actually, I'm falling over him because he's just tabletopped me. And I'm falling over. He's taking me out my own speed there. And, it's, and he's, he's smiling, maybe even laughing a little bit. And, and as he comes down, he starts coming up. And my legs are on top of him. I go for this heels overhead kind of somersault fall. I'm on, the, on my back. And I've just got this whole new appreciation for the game of football. He'd totally take me out. I was given this new appreciation for this sport. I was going to have to work a lot harder and learn a lot more if I really wanted to play that game well, which I decided I didn't want to do. <laughs> I'm a sprinter, it turns out, and, and uh, you only run in a straight line. Uh, football people and hockey guys, they learn to deke and maneuver. I wanted to say deke, but I couldn't find that in my spell check. I don't even know how to spell that word. But maneuver, I could find out. Anyways, in football, you can't just waltz down Main Street and into the end zone where then, when other players are in the way. So he just totally knocked me flat. It was a great hit, and uh, it changed my perspective. And the Bible's great hits have that same effect on us. They kind of knock us flat. They change the way you think. A hard-hitting verse will put a message in your head that you won't soon forget. And Matthew 7, 13 to 14 makes an impact like that. And it's a spiritual one, of course. The word of God can hit you, lay you out flat. You'll get it. You'll remember these words, and hopefully you remember them forever. This verse, to me, is a stunner. You want to look at that together? Let's go to Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Two verses today, small amount of text, and you're wondering, well, will we get a full sermon out of this? And yes, you will. I'm a preacher. I can handle it. Um, it starts off this way. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are a few. 
You might have memorized this or heard it in a different way because the way that I remember it, the, the adjectives that describe the things are put first. It's more like this. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and easy is the way that leads to destruction and those who enter it by many. For, the, for narrow is the gate, and hard is the way that leads to life, and those who find it are a few. The emphasis is on those, those tough words there. And that's what we want to look at today as we, as we move into the scriptures. Let's just pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what it does in my life. I thank you for what it's done in the lives of people that are here. It draws us to you. And Lord, I ask you today, if this is the first time someone's considering this verse or if it's, the, you know, it's something that they've done often, would you use it to lay us out flat again? Help us understand and apply this lesson to our lives. Amen. Amen. Well, I call this sermon This Way Home, and, and uh, in order to tell you why, we're supposed to let you know why these verses have kind of had some meaning to our lives. Uh, that was the name of the first song I ever wrote. I used to write music. I was in a band, uh, a worship team, and we used to travel and, and uh, lead uh, at retreats, and we wrote music, and we played songs. I was the keyboard player doing my best Ian Thomas impression. And uh, for some reason, people identified that, and they would come up afterwards, and they would ask us to to sign things, and we were a bunch of young men, teenage guys, and we felt that you know, it was kind of vain just to sign your own name, so we thought we should put some scripture on it when we sign our names, and, and we all chose verses, and working with youth, and really with anybody at that time, uh, this was the verse I wanted to put on everybody's uh, CD or, or whatever they bought from us. I wanted them to remember this, enter by the narrow gate, because by that time in my life, I was convinced that most of us were just getting it wrong, that we needed that little reminder that... Uh, no matter what, we needed to be directed to go home. And that was the heart of many of the songs that we did and many of the uh, uh, retreats and stuff we led. We sang songs that we hope led people home. So that's why we've called it this way, and, and we want to look at these verses, look at these illustrations today to draw something out of them. So let's begin. The narrow gate and the hard way are Jesus' early metaphors for discipleship, and whether we like the way this sounds or not, we must lean into these examples because discipleship is our only way home. It's the only thing that leads us back to God. This verse will knock spiritual sense into anyone who thinks following Jesus will be some sort of cakewalk. It's not. As we meditate on this verse, we'll realize that discipleship requires at least four personal, life-altering convictions. You have to be convicted if you're going to walk this path. It's not an easy invitation, but we, we want to respond to it. So are you ready for these four convictions? You have them. Let's begin with number one. I must do whatever it takes to get back to God. I must do whatever it takes to get back to God. When Jesus tells us in verse 13 that we need to enter by the narrow gate, he's laying out for us an uncomfortable proposition. He reminds us that we start off lost in sin. Because if we need to be reminded, if we need direction, it's because we don't know where to go. So he's telling us, use that door over there. Ignore the big doors. Ignore the big gate. See, I think when, when Jesus was beginning to, to use this illustration, people had before them the, the, the cities, the great cities of the Roman Empire, where they would build these roads. The Romans were known for perfecting the idea of roads. And, and when you're entering an important city, you'd get to use a main road, and that road would be marked by pillars and, and a wide area where everybody entering the city, everybody that was going to be important, any dignitaries, any royal people, any, any of these people wanting to shop or trade, they would use the main gates. They would take this road and they would walk into that city and they would, they would shop and enjoy. Same way that we go into Toronto, take the 400 down, take the main roads in, just enter in there and end up downtown for all the splendor that it could have for us. 
And Jesus had that in his mind, I think. And then you had these other ways that you could get around a city, little side roads, little, little side entrances into places where it was for a different purpose for entering in. And Jesus is saying, listen, consider that illustration. Consider those doors as you go in. So it reminds us that we're, we're lost. We need some direction. If, you, if you're looking for the way home, you got to consider this narrow gate. It's not easy to find, but if you do find the gate, you don't get to come in like royalty. You don't get to go through like celebrity. You don't get to come in like a person on a business trip. You don't get to come in like a shopper or a tourist. You can only enter if you'll follow the humble lifestyle that Jesus described in Matthew 5 through 7. This is called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the preceding chapters in this verse that I've chosen for you today. It's right at the end of this sermon. And in this sermon, Jesus explains what he expects from the people on the narrow way. He starts off saying you need to be salt and light, saying you, you need to have a life that's going to mean something to other people, a positive meaning, salt and light. He needs to, you need to settle your disputes. You, need to, uh, you, you don't play around with lust on this, on this way. You make your marriage work. You preserve the integrity of your word. You turn the other cheek. You love your enemy. You don't make a show of your religion. You don't live for wealth. wealth. You stop worrying about your daily needs. You take the plank out of your own eye before you try to address the sin of someone else. And you treat others the way you want to be treated. It's a narrow gate because you can't enter with any markings of self-importance intact. You have to let all of that be stripped away from you. The sign above the narrow gate would say, this is the servant entrance. No self-professed VIPs permitted. You know, at our church here, we have this kind of the side of our building is the main side over there, and most of us go in through those doors. You see them, we have a very big main entrance over here, but we have another door on the back. It's small, it's unmarked. And when you come here, you know, most of us will use those doors, but when you come to serve, if you come in the, at the right time, you don't get the same kind of greeting. You have a servant entrance. You come through the servant way. The way, and it requires humility. The way into this kingdom requires you to be humble right from the start of the journey, and you have to take a servant attitude. You must agree that whatever role you will be given to play in the kingdom, in God's house, whether it's big or small, it's going to be worth it just to be there. Now, this might surprise you if you're living with the idea that God is someone who wants to do things for you. And some of us have responded maybe subconsciously to, the, to a gospel that's kind of abbreviated or truncated. They've left a part out. It highlights God's gifts, but it ignores our responsibility to live holy. And people that preach this, they tell us that if we come to Jesus, we are going to live better because he wants to make us happier versions of ourselves. He wants to make us the best version of ourselves possible. He wants to make us healthier or wealthier. He wants to lead us to have a better family experience or help us build a bigger business or a better career or find a career. Listen, it's not the gospel if it makes God out to be some type of good genie and all you have to do is rub the lamp. That's not what we've been called to do. The gospel must include, and it does include, the invitation to come and serve and even to risk death because God is offering eternal life. Consider those two words, eternal life. Do they still mean anything to you? Are they worth it? Matthew 16, 24 to 25 makes it more explicit. You can write the reference down and look at this later for yourself. Matthew 16, 24 to 25. It makes this challenge more explicit. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him go through the narrow gate 
and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will what? Lose it. You've heard the verse before. Whoever would save his life will, will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus calls us to come and humbly serve him. And if you think about it, why would you say yes to that kind of invitation? I was laughing with some people after the service last night saying, if Jesus only spoke like this, we wouldn't put him on our welcome team. Welcome, take the narrow gate. <laughs> you know, we, we, we do a better job to try to make it sound easy and friendly, but you know, why would you say yes to this kind of invitation? Well, your reasons might be different than mine, but here are mine. First, heaven always has seemed like a better proposition than hell to me. I know it almost seems straightforward and silly, but if you start to think about it, if, if these are the two options, if this is where life is going to end up, and the one option is heaven and the other is hell, you don't even have to be very old to realize, look, I would choose heaven every time. So when I understood that Christ forgives sinners and that confession and repentance started the journey towards heaven, I was on my knees. I was weeping and praying and pleading for salvation, saying, Lord, I don't want any part of hell. Please save me. Second, I've seen how people on the wide and easy become disillusioned while people who have taken the hard road grow in peace. I've seen that. Too often the stories played out in our world, right before us in, in the media, even right now, people who are not walking any type of Christian path, they're just becoming disillusioned and it's sad and, and tragic. And yet we know people who have just lived a quiet life, it's hard. It's been tough, it has challenges, but they come to a spot, the same challenge, and, and they have peace where other people bring chaos. And, and if I need to serve God to experience heaven and have this kind of peace, I'll do that. Psalm 84, the psalmist writes, I'd rather be a gatekeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Listen, do you want to be with God? You might want to be at church. You might want to be here with your family, with your wife or your husband. You might want to, you know, enjoy the coffee. But do you want to be with God? Is there anything you wouldn't do for the experience of living forever with your heavenly Father? This is the first conviction we have. I must do whatever it takes to get back to God. Second, conviction number two, the easy road can't save me from destruction. Jesus said there are many people on it, so it must be attractive, and it is. There are lots of things on the easy road, on the wide way that are attractive. And maybe you're like me, you find yourself looking at all the experiences and all the pieces of information that are presented to us and wondering, what's important? Like, how do I decipher these things? Is there anything there that I'm missing that perhaps could be better for my life? And uh, you, you start to try to go through it and you realize there's too much to do. There's too many places to go, too many posts on social media. <laughs> That's me scrolling up on my phone. Did someone get born? Did someone pass away? Did someone get a new car? What, I, I don't even know, right? Hannah, did, do we see anything? That's how I use social media. Hannah, what do we know, right? <laughs> right? Just too many news stories, too many stock options and updates. So much that it's dizzying and overwhelming. As part of my research, I love to get on the internet and, and begin to look at what the rest of the world's thinking. And I was thinking, what are the distractions? And I, I found a list of 31 toys for grown men. Grown men. And, and I, I'm, I'm saying these because I want some of these myself. Okay? But they're ridiculous. Okay? So this list suggested that uh, grown men would like submarines. Personal submarines. They had a picture of one you could buy. Personalized eco-vehicles. 
sports cars and bikes that, that don't require gas. Yeah, that'd be perfect, man. I could just have fun and not pay the, the gas bill. That'd be perfect. Water jet boots. Yeah. Right? Pillows that play music so you don't have to have headphones on. You can just fall asleep listening to your tunes. Those were great ideas. I'm not condemning any of this stuff. I could get them for Father's Day. <laughs> the delights out there are endless, okay? For example, you, 300 hours of video are loaded up to YouTube every minute. Some of you are going to go home today and get stuck in an endless soup of looking at cat videos, right? <laughs> 300 million songs on Spotify or Apple Music. And if that's not your thing, maybe you're a nature person. 250,000 lakes in Ontario to try to find a fish in. They were doing that yesterday. Four million or more than that active Canadian businesses you can deal with to buy something if you want. 450,000 of those are in Ontario. Um, that's not including Amazon or Kijiji. TripAdvisor recommends that there are 58 unique things to do in the city of Barrie alone with 356 places that you can eat. That's almost a new place to go every day of the year. Of these, if you like this, 14 businesses are devoted to selling burgers. I'm trying to get through them all. And if you want to count them all, 15 if you count Boone Burger, which I don't, because they don't sell meat there. Now here's the funny thing, being new to the church, I forgot that the chef at Boone Burger Works comes here. So he reminded me last night. Uh, these are just the clean entertainment options, okay? What about all the things that get put on the table if you're not concerned about sin? There's so much to keep our hearts from going home to God, and we can literally waste our entire lives living like the prodigal son if the money doesn't run out and the parties don't stop. This is life on the wide and easy road. So I'm calling that Main Street, and it's full of delights. People love to walk on Main Street and sample the downtown experiences, both illegal, legal, and everything in between. You can do it all, you can try everything, and you can be anyone. But you can never buy and experience a Main Street delight that will break the curse of death. There's nothing that you could get through the main gates and the wide road that can break the curse of death. The easy road can't save you from destruction. In fact, Jesus said the easy road leads straight to it, and many are on it. It's tragic, the news that came out of Florida about the school shooting, and there's so much that's happened there. 17 people destroyed, 18 if you count that. His life was destroyed. He didn't kill, but his life was destroyed too. I looked into this because we were just in Florida, and I was wondering, where did this happen? Because we went down to Florida to relax, to go to Disney World, to enjoy all that stuff. And I thought, well, you know, it seemed like such a nice place. So I looked it up. Where is this school? What, where is it? How close was it to us? And, and when I zoomed in on, on the maps, I noticed right away that the school is in the center of a, of a town that's full of golf courses. It, it looks idyllic, and it's just very close to the beach, maybe 20 minutes away. The, the coast is up there. It's a place where people should go for fun, and right there in the middle of it, there's destruction and chaos and death. You can't escape it. We can't ignore God's word while we seek out pleasure and ease and expect it to work out well. The more we give up to pursue the delights and sins offered to us on Main Street, it seems the more death pursues us, first robbing us of our dignity and then it starts wrecking our lives and the lives of people around us as we use and abuse them selfishly. No relationships work when you put the pursuit of personal satisfaction above everything else. 
No relationships can work that way. That is wickedness. Whether you see it that way or you don't, and God won't tolerate it. Listen to Proverbs 14, 11, and 12. Proverbs 14, 11, and 12 says this, the house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. For everybody walking on Main Street and thinking this is gonna work out, this is another one of those ones that hits you upside the head. There's a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way of death. I ask you this morning, what path are you pursuing? Are you seeking eternal life or are you just looking for pleasure and ease? Look down the road to see if you like what's coming. Don't play this dangerous game with God because he has promised to destroy people who pursue pleasure and ease, the pleasure and ease of wicked living. That's his promise. That's his pledge. There's many pages in scripture that says, I am going to settle the score on this issue. There is no main street delight that can save you from destruction. You have to believe that if you're going to take the narrow way. What's the third conviction? The hard road, by comparison, prepares me for eternal life. If you're going to respond to Jesus' invitation, you have to believe that the way he wants you to walk is going to get, get you there, and it's preparing you for the future. Just like if you want to lose some weight, you have to believe that spending time in the gym is going to be part of the process, that you're going to be somewhere on a treadmill sweating it out, that you're going to be at, a, at the keg denying yourself dessert, that the pizza box will have a few slices left in it when you're done, right? You have to understand that. There are things that you'll be doing that prepare you for where you want to go. <laughs> the hard road is the training ground for eternal life, and, it, and the tests of our convictions are to be expected. Jesus told his disciples in the very beginning to anticipate persecution. And Christians aren't the only ones who are persecuted, uh, but in our case, the mistreatment occurs because of our public alignment with Jesus Christ. Whether it's mild or overt, or occasional or constant, one way or another, we will face opposition for choosing the path that we have over the wide and easy road. Persecution is particularly harsh in places like North Africa right now, Mexico, the Middle East, and Asia. And here in Canada, it's been comparatively mild. Uh, we enjoy the freedom of worship, and, and we have many protections under law. But uh, mild persecution can be experienced still as rejection in an intimate relationship. You could lose someone you want to marry because they don't want to come with you and worship God. Now, you could get snubbed at a social event. You might not even get the invitation. It may take the form of harassment in the workplace, jokes, uh, or, or those kind of things. It might be fewer sales in the storefront or with your, with your clients because of the values you keep. It can be virtual. It can be violent. And lately, it's been political. When anyone or any group takes hostile action against you to discourage your righteousness and turn you away from Christ, it's persecution. When a culture is hostile to the claims of Jesus Christ, Jesus said, they will persecute my followers. Now that's, that's hard news. That's not easy to hear. But God has revealed a blessing in persecution. And I think it's this, the more persecution we face, the greater heaven becomes. The more persecution we face, the greater heaven becomes. Look back at the beginning of this sermon, Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, and you'll see that right along 
Jesus begins to talk about persecution. It starts off so nice. You'll see the words in, in your Bible. You might see blessed, 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 blessed. You guys are all blessed. And you say, that's great. I'd love to be blessed. And then he turns the tone in verse 10. And he says, blessed are those who are persecuted. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know what my house, the worst crime is? It's to get in trouble for when you've done the right thing. That will bring tears on everybody's face, including my own. I clean my room, Mom. I mean, Hannah. <laughs> right? I clean my room. Nobody likes to get in trouble for doing the right thing. And here Jesus is saying, blessed are you, blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Why? Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Your reward is great when you reach your home. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's a blessing in persecution. The more persecution we face, the greater heaven becomes. What does persecution do for the church? It perse it persecution strengthens resolve. It reveals convictions. It makes, the church, it makes the true church more obvious. It motivates prayer. It draws attention to the gospel message and makes us long for Christ to return. We should anticipate persecution on the hard way. But that's not the only type of hardship we face. We also are told to expect trials. James chapter 1. If you want to look there, if you might have time to turn. James chapter 1. I put a little yellow tab there, but if you don't want to do that, I'll just read it to you, okay? It says, count it all joys, my, my brothers, my believers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We're to expect these trials, and trials are situations that reveal the allegiance of our heart. In James' mind, trials are an occasion for joy, crazy as it may seem, because they offer us an opportunity to move us closer to home. What kind of trials did James see as opportunities? He writes about them. He writes about the opportunity to move closer to home when we, when we meet people who have needs, to treat them as equals. He talks about taming the tongue, about not presuming too quickly to lead, about learning to be content what we with what we have and not arguing, about making business plans with respect to God's will, about managing your wealth and, and praying through illnesses. Those are the things that you'll learn about if you read James. Our trials aren't limited to these things, but they are familiar tests that believers have faced over all the years that, of, of faithful living that we've seen. And trials are part of the hard way. The final type of hardship that we're told to expect is the Lord's discipline. This is the corrective pain that God lets us experience as a result of our sinfulness. He does this because he says he's our father and he loves us. And the comparison would be, if he let us get away with it, it'd be like we're illegitimate kids who have no heavenly father who loves us, who doesn't, who does, who's not concerned to tell us what's wrong or right. So he says, because you're coming to my house and because I'm bringing you in as a child and I want, and I want to love you properly, I am going to actually help you deal with your sin. I'm going to teach you lessons along the way. And that makes it hard. It, it's hard to be held accountable for our sin. But God does that. And so scriptures encourage us, Proverbs 3.11 to 12, you can write the reference, but maybe you've heard this one, Proverbs 3.11 to 12, my child, don't reject the Lord's discipline and don't be upset when he corrects you for the Lord corrects those he loves just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. And the writer of Hebrews reflecting on that adds this, he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. 
That's a true statement if I've ever heard one. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's Hebrews 12, 10 to 11. Hardship on the narrow way is part of God's plan to help us mature. But that benefit alone isn't enough to make me want to do it. That's not enough. I, I'll admit it. That, you know, just, if you just tell me that, hey, it's, it's for your own good, that's never made me want to take a punishment. That's never encouraged me. And I don't think it would encourage you. I think there's a little bit more and the Bible offers it. And it's this. It's, it's not that just that we get to be stronger as Christians. Uh, Jesus pe- didn't call people to suffer hardship for their own benefit alone. Jesus called us to walk this path in life that would be light and salt to others, that would bring good news to lost people. And the way we suffer is a blessing to those who are looking for the way home. It, it marks the way out. And and Jesus suffered, and that has led us to salvation, and we get to share in that too. That's amazing. That's an attitude to take the next time you're going through persecution or a trial or discipline to say, wow, as I do this, people might turn to my example and say, ah, I'm learning the way home from this person as they go through this hardship. You have to be convinced of this if you're going to take this narrow gate and this hard road. Hardships prepare me for eternal life. The last conviction is, this. If I remain faithful, God will bring me home. Before we leave our study, we should look at the context of this verse. This verse comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mountain. There's four contrasts that appear here uh, at the end of the sermon. And each one of these contrasts speaks to faithfulness. And it gives us actually practical considerations to, to, to follow up on as we walk this hard way. If we expect to reach eternal life, we have to put in some effort, just as I was saying about those who want to lose weight or anything else. It's not a cakewalk. Now, listen, some might be thinking, well, does God save me or do do I save myself? God saves you. Our effort doesn't save us. God saves us. But our effort shows that we want salvation to happen. Your effort won't save you. God saves you. But your effort shows that you want salvation to happen. And as we look at these contrasts, I, I think we'll see three areas where we need to put effort into that Jesus was concerned about at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So you're looking here for verses 15 through 27. I won't get into them to read them to you, but I want to talk to, about each of them in turn. The first part talks about uh, putting effort into learning to identify and avoid false teachers. You have to learn to identify and avoid false teachers. That's the first part he's talking about. Beware of false prophets. They come to you in disguise. They look like us, but they're actually against us. So what does this mean? It means that we must know the core message of Scripture so that we can't be taken advantage of. There are plenty of teachers out there. How many of you would already admit that besides the people in this stage, you listen to sermons and, and, and all sorts of voices, and maybe not even just from the church. You, you draw wisdom from different places. Dr. Phil and Oprah wouldn't have a job if people weren't interested in learning from lots of different teachers. We, we do that, but we need to know uh, that some people aren't speaking about things that will lead us home to God. So Jesus says, look at their character to see if it lines up with what the Spirit produces. That's what it means to be looking at their fruit. And so I'm remembering it this way, judge the fruit before you accept someone's message. Judge the fruit before you accept the message. 
have to put an effort into learning about that. Number two, you need to put effort this way. Give Jesus more than pseudo-service. He says this phrase, not everyone who, who uh, says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a scary statement. Right, when you come in here, what do you say? You say, Lord, Lord. You say, Jesus. You say, Heavenly Father. You say everything right. And Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And that, that should get your attention. And, and it's almost like he puts them in air quotes because it's almost more like flattery than it is a statement of submission. Your life has to be more about more than mouthing the words to familiar songs and moving through the routines of worship. you want to take away a phrase from me, I, think, I don't think I've heard anybody else say it this way. You can give me a penny every time you quote it. But if you fake it, you don't make it. I don't need the penny. If you fake it, you don't make it. And that's what he's saying there. So you have to put effort to make sure you're not living this suit away, that your Lord, Lord, is not just flattery, but it's a true statement of your submission to him. And then Third, you need to put effort this way. Embrace Christ's teaching to secure you in the storm. You have to avoid false teachers. You have to, uh, you, you have to give him more than pseudo-service. And you have to embrace his teaching to secure you in the storms. This is the, the familiar passage. The song came up. Uh, Don't build your house on the sandy land. Don't build it too near the shore. Do you know this song? It may look kind of nice, but you'll have to build it twice. You'll have to build your house once more. We sang those kind of songs in our Sunday school. Um, I even remember the melody, but I've committed not to sing to you from here. Right? These last illustrations encompass the point of the other two, that, that we would pay attention to the right kind of teaching and that we would actually have a genuine kind of life. And in order to do that, you have to make a change at the foundation foundational level of who you are, of your own life. You have to identify with Christ as the rock, as the solid ground, as the solid shore, not the shore, the, the solid rock that, that you need to set the rest of your life upon him. Because if you have the wrong foundation, these storms that come up, and they're not the storms of judgment at the end of the scriptures, these are just the storms of life, the trials, the persecution, the, the disciplines. If you're, if you're not set on Christ as your foundation, when your life meets those situations, it will crumble, it will fall flat. Those parts of your life that don't stand, those are the parts that aren't set on Jesus. The ones that do, the parts that have been maturing the, the life that you could say, hey, I'm growing, I'm, I'm, I'm stronger, I'm, I'm more faithful now, that's the part that's set on the rock. And so you need to put effort there. It requires effort to remain faithful. And it's hard, but God is leading us home. These are the convictions of people on the hard road. They're doing whatever it takes to get back to God. They have realized that there's nothing on the easy road that will save them from destruction. They understand that the hard road is preparing them for eternal life, and they're making the effort to remain faithful. So that's the convictions we need. But as I've been thinking about who needs to hear this message, I've been thinking about the reality of walking the hard, hard road. And, and if you ever looked at the, the word for hard, it, it talks about the, the idea of, of, a, of a way that's just pressed down, that's afflicted that's crushed. It's a hard way to walk. And, and, and emotionally, that becomes really tough. And perhaps recently, you've been tempted to give up the hard way and go back 
to the easy road. Maybe you're really struggling with that today. You maybe haven't told anybody yet, but that's the truth. Maybe there's an experience of pleasure, a good thing, a tough thing, a, an illegal thing, who knows, but something that has drawn your attention away and it's, it's luring you. We sin because we like it. That's the truth. And it's drawing your attention away. Or maybe it's just a hardship that currently seems unbearable. The cross is heavy, splintering your back. The pressure from other people is just too much. And the result is that you just want to take a break. Five minutes back on Main Street and live outside of these convictions for a while. So the temptation is weighing on you. But you haven't fully given in yet. Can I just encourage you? Would you let someone here pray with you today? Would you be willing to talk about that if, if you have a small group leader? Would you raise that issue with them, a trusted person that way? Would you talk about it with maybe your ministry team leader if you don't have a small group? You can send it in as a prayer request. You can grab that, bolt, that uh, black folder again and write it down and say, yeah, you know what, I, I need to talk about this. You can talk to us because we've all been there. Every pastor's been there. Every elder's been there. Every Christian in this room has been in that spot. But we want to encourage you, don't give up. Don't give in. The path is hard, but it's worth it. You're heading home. You're heading to the place where God is going to be with you forever. You're going to experience an eternity of God's love and provision. It's waiting for anyone who enters the narrow gate and follows the hard way back to God. Let's pray. God, I just thank you. I thank you for your word. And, and Lord, my heart is, is heavy for, for us today because the truth is it's not easy to walk your way. It is hard. And it often seems like many people are against us. And, and Lord, even when we try to do the right thing and we do the wrong thing, you come and you, and you remind us that we can't walk that way any longer. So Lord, for the people that are discouraged, would you just lead them? Lead them to be open about that today, not to hide it, but to confess it and be encouraged. And then Father, for the rest of us, um, Lord, I pray that you just refresh our convictions. Lord, bless us with a greater resolve to walk your way. The world needs to see people who are on fire for you. God, would you would you make us that kind of church? Would you keep us that kind of church? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.